0: Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In our episode today, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer continues in a mini-series on spiritual gifts. The series is called Out of Many, One. In this series, we are looking at what the Bible reveals to us about these God-given gifts. Today's talk is the closer in the series, and it's titled 10W30. If you're in the Ashland Tri-State area, we would love to see you. Stick around until the end and find out how you can connect with us here at Unity Baptist Church.
1: All right, if you'd like to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, this is the final sermon on spiritual gifts. As you study the spiritual gifts passages, the four passages, you would probably recall that we've told you none of those passages are the same. They don't all record the same spiritual gifts. They don't all bear the exact same message. And so the primary importance in studying spiritual gifts certainly is to get involved. Everybody has a gift. Everybody should be using their gift. Everybody, every person who's a child of God, everyone who has the spirit of God has the gift of God, right? But if you'll study those four passages on spiritual gifts, again, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, you're gonna find that they also bear something in common. With every one of those passages on spiritual gifts, tell encouraging the body, use your gift, serve in the church, do something for God's sake, do something. While we do that though, is there a tendency when you're using your gift and this person's using their gift and we serve in different ways that sometimes we can rub up against one another? It can cause some friction. Okay? So there's some lubrication within the engine of the body of Christ, some cartilage to keep your bones from rubbing on each other, things that keep us from hurting one another or resenting one another for not serving in the same way, for not agreeing with one another. When it comes time to vote, that we don't vote the same way on things, what keeps us from that friction from building up? It's not motor oil, 10W30, right? But I'll tell you what is 10W30 to the body of Christ, to that engine that drives the church. It's love. That is the common denominator between all four spiritual gifts passages is that they all have in common that either introducing or concluding their subject on spiritual gifts. Every last one of them talks about love one another. A church would be remiss. They'd be delinquent on teaching on spiritual gifts if we didn't teach you, hey, while you're serving each other, do it lovingly. You may not agree with one another, do it lovingly. You may may bump up against each other, do it lovingly. And that will grease the gears that keep ministry going on. Ephesians chapter four talks about spiritual gifts and it says this, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. First Peter four, another spiritual gift passage says this in verse eight, above all, more importantly than even what you do, it's how you do it. He says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. I'm not talking about like, you know, sinning against God, but like when we sin against one another, when we offend one another, love can cover that. I don't have to take that offense and carry it with me and talk about 20 years later how somebody offended me in a church 20 years ago. We can let that go. That's what love does. 1 Corinthians 13 follows 1 Corinthians 12, which is talking about spiritual gifts, and 1 Corinthians 14, which talks about spiritual gifts. Sandwiched right in the middle of that passage is 1 Corinthians 13, also called the love chapter of the Bible. It's where we find the Bible's most clear definition of what love is. Love is patient, love is kind, it's long-suffering. And then in our passage today, Romans 12 also talks about spiritual gifts, and he concludes his message by saying, let love be genuine. Do you see? What ties all these passages together, is love. Because as First Corinthians 13 will point out, whether I could speak with the tongue of men and angels, whether I have all knowledge, have all faith, and understand all mysteries, and even if I give my body, everything that I have, and my, my body to be burned for Jesus, if we don't have love, without love, Unity Baptist Church is nothing. No amount of good preaching that we have, or no matter how good music we have, no matter how pretty your building is, if this church doesn't have love, people aren't gonna wanna come play in our yard and I don't blame them either. Nobody wants to be in an unloving church. I don't care how doctrinally sound you are. Without love, friends, Unity Baptist Church is nothing. Those aren't my words. Those are God's words. And so we're going to preach this morning on one of those spiritual gift admonitions on love. Love is so important to the exercise of spiritual gifts because as we exercise our gift, you do it this way, you do it this way, I do it another way, and we're going to rub against each other and bump each other and we need some 10W30 in that engine, don't we? What happens if you run out of engine oil in your engine? You ever try that? We tried it one time. Let me report, okay? Um, we had a 1995 Honda Odyssey and uh, I loved that car because the seats folded. It's one of the first years they did it. and I loved it, it was great. Even though it was a minivan, I still liked it. Well, I get a phone call, I forget where I was, at work or somewhere, and uh, what had happened was this. My wife, and this is not against her, but my wife is (laughs) driving our car down the road. I don't know what you hit, what did you hit? It wasn't a raccoon because whatever it was, some kind of rock or chuck hole or a tree, uh, she hit something and something broke. Well, it was the oil pan. And so what she didn't know is that all the engine oil was leaching out of the engine. So she didn't know, so she just kept driving and she says, huh, the engine's starting to overheat. I wonder what I should do. Well, the problem was it was dark. And I don't blame her. She's probably thinking, you know, if it just started overheating. It's never done this before. I'm just going to keep on driving. And so she does. And she's driving home with this this overheat thing on and eventually I believe it stranded you did it not and eventually the car was overheated and she's just going please God please get me home well this is one of those times where God said not this time so she ends up by the side of the road and she's calling me and telling me what happened and come to find out we inspected it show enough all the oil was out of the engine you ever try running an engine without oil all those things that are moving, I don't understand, I don't know engines, but all those moving parts going inside the engine, but this time, without any oil between them, there's friction and and heat builds up, and pretty soon, your engine just goes and it stopped. We had to buy a new engine. That engine was shot because there was no oil to lubricate those moving parts as each part was doing its own thing within the body. And friends, the exact same thing happens in the church. If we teach on spiritual gifts and we simply teach that you should be doing something and that you should be active in the church, but we don't teach love, what we've essentially done is we have handed you an engine with no oil. Because with the spiritual gifts, we always have to teach the 10W30. It's just a common motor oil, by the way. uh, The the, 10W30 for the church that keeps those parts lubricated and moving nicely in close proximity to one another is love. Love. So we're gonna look in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, hopefully we won't hit any potholes as a church and, you know, leech out all of our love, but we're gonna look, number one, at some preventative maintenance. What are some things that we can do to prevent the church from becoming an unloving church, a disunified and divided church? He's gonna see in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verses nine and going through 13, we're gonna see uh, a rapid fire list of things here. The way that verses nine to 13 reads is like a mother when your child is about to go off to college for the first time. What are mothers doing? At the door. They're like, did you pack your underwear? Did you pack your toothbrush? Did you get this? Uh, Make sure you drive slowly. If you get tired, be sure to pull over and stop because you can always rest, you know. like." She just gives you this whole list of things to make sure that you've gotten everything that you need. Dads, we're like, say, you know, my job is done. Mom is so concerned about you. She wants to make sure you've got all these little rapid fire, last minute things. That's kind of how this text reads. Paul, after talking about spiritual gifts, is going to say, love one another. And here's what that looks like. So, first thing we're going to see here is love without hypocrisy. Verse 9, he simply says, let love be genuine. Hypocrisy is the opposite of genuine, by the way. Uh, Hypocrisy means to speak out from under a mask. It means I look one way to you, but I'm something different on the inside. It's sort of like when your children fight and mom makes you say I'm sorry. You ever do that, I'm sorry. You know, he's not really sorry. And then they make you hug it out, you know, pretend that we're loving one another. And really he has about as much interest in hugging his brother as an angry weasel. It just, I'm gonna hug his mom tells me to do that. And that's, it's, that, that's hypocritical love, it's not genuine love, but God wants us to get to a place where we can honestly look at someone else in the church and love genuinely. I want to show you love, to honor God and because it's what's best for you. Love genuinely, it means without hypocrisy, it means unfaked, unsimulated. It's, it's genuine love, I truly care about you, even if you hurt me. By the way, that's when love is truly shown. Jesus says, if you love those that love you, what benefit is there in that? He says, even the tax collectors, the ones that all the Jews regarded as lost people, even lost people love people. If I give you a $100 bill, promise you, you're gonna think highly of me this morning. I won't. But if I did, you would. Love is only truly shown when it's undeserved, like the way God showed us. While we were yet sinners, what does Romans 6 say? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we're still angry with God, Then he showed that. That's when true love is shown. You don't know if you truly love a person until they hurt you. How are you gonna respond now? And so we love without any strings attached. We don't love them because they love us back. In fact, James 1.27 describes what true religion looks like. Religion that is pure and undefiled, he says, is this. Pure and undefiled before God, Uh, The father is this to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction. Why is that pure and undefiled religion? Because, especially in that culture, what can a widow do for you? What can an orphan do for you? Can they improve your social standing? No. Are they going to loan you 50 bucks? No. They're the ones who need your money. A widow and orphan can't do anything. So when we choose to love widows and orphans, we're loving genuine. I'm loving with no strings attached. I'm gonna love you because God loved me. I'm gonna love you because that's who God made me to be. I'm not gonna love you because of what I think you can get back or love you because you're gonna love me back. I love, why does 1 John say we love? We love because he first loved us. That's the basis of our love. It's God's example and pattern of love. People don't have to earn our love. So love without hypocrisy. B, uh, a church has to deal with sin. He says, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Is sin ever beneficial to a people? It's not. Sin, in fact, think about this. What divided you from God? Sin. It's what separated Satan from God, Adam and Eve from God. It's what separates you and I from God. Sin divides it's, it's damaging. Sin will divide a nation, won't it? I know as Americans, sin hasn't divided us, but we have to take it by faith that it does. Are we a United States? Friends, we're very divided right now. What is dividing us? It's those differences of opinions as to what God says is sin and what the world says is not. And it cuts the United States in half. Romans 14, 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So when we live righteous, according to God's Bible, according to His standard, it says that God Himself raises us up. He strengthens us. He blesses us. But when we allow sin into the camp, it divides us. It breaks us down. It weakens us. That It says it's a reproach that God has rejected us It hurts you individually, sin hurts your family, it hurts your church, it hurts your society, and sin is the downfall of every nation. I mean, study every major world empire. They weren't defeated from the outside, how'd they die? They rotted from the inside. I mean, study the Roman Empire, you know, it'll make you blush how sinful, how like the days of Noah they were at the close of their empire. Instead, he says, we are to abhor what is evil. We don't use that term very often, abhor. You know, I abhor that food, Uh, they'll look at you funny, but it just means to detest with horror. It's how you feel when you see a snake or a spider, or how my wife at least feels when she sees a bug of any kind, Uh, she kind of freaks out, you know. She detests with horror. Doesn't matter if it's a good snake that eats the bad snakes, I want it dead. Doesn't matter if it's a spider eating the bad things or eats the insects, a bat that eats the mosquitoes. I want it dead. I mean, she abhors it. She detests it with horror. The Bible says that a believer, when we understand what sin is and how it separates us from God, we come to a place where we hate what God hates. We abhor sin. It, it, we, we just have this detest of sin in our life. That's one of the true tests that you're a believer, by the way. Not that you never sin but that your attitude towards sin is, oh, I hate that. And when you do sin, you're like Paul, wretched man that I am. The good things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do. I feel wretched. So our attitude towards sin changes. We abhor what is evil. See, we put others before ourselves. He says, love one another, verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. To love someone with a brotherly affection means that we are affectionate towards one, or, one another like we would family. It's a brotherly love. That when we come in here, we don't look at the people seated next to you like we do people over at the, the food fair across the street, you know, where you just kind of drive by indifferently. Yep, don't know them, don't need to know them. Uh, in church, we look when we come together, we look at it one another like family. I want to be with you. I want to know you. I want you to know me. And sometimes, family ever hurt you, offend you? If your family doesn't, you know, it's a model family, but most families, they hurt one another sometimes. Do you bear up under it and tolerate it anyhow? Yes, you know, in fact, your mom will say, we don't do each other like that, we're family, you know. We, he, she just points to that. We're family, so we don't treat each other like that. We don't, we don't hold grudges. We don't hold hatred toward one another. We have a brotherly affection for one another. We love, we love each other even though we've had past pains. He also says, we outdo one another in showing honor. Now, this isn't always as prevalent in American culture where I feel like we compete for everything. Like, as kids, we're going to race to see who can be the first one to the water fountain, first to the luncheon line, first to this, first to that. Like, everything in America is a competition. But... <laughs> The Bible goes counterculture here. Instead of competing with everybody for things, competing for the top spot, competing for attention, he says, outdo one another. Compete in this way, in showing honor. Honor is a gift that we give to somebody else. It's not a gift that we seek for ourselves. It's not one that we retain for ourselves. The Bible says, let another man's lips praise you and not your own. So honor is a gift that we seek to give away. And a mature believer who's walking with Jesus wants to give that honor away. They're not always seeking it for themselves. I've mentioned this before, but this concept of the most honorable position for a person is a person who gives it away. It's most present in Chinese culture. Having been there for you know 11 years, we saw it very clearly in Chinese culture. Now in America, if I compliment your kid and you say, you have a really beautiful child, what are you going to say in return? How much money do you want? No, you're going, to say, you're going to say, well, thank you. Yeah, he is so cute. We're so loving. In Chinese culture, if somebody compliments your child, you know what you say? Nali, nali. It means where? I don't see what you see. You know? It's this humility that I'm not just going to allow you to heap praise upon me. And when you go out to eat, you fight over the check as to who gets to pay. Not because you want him to pay. It's because you want to pay for them. You want to show them honor. I mean, you take me out to the Texas Roadhouse and you offer to pay for my, my roadkill meal, I'll be like, go for it, thank you. you know, God bless, you know, I, let's do this next week. That's how we feel. But in Chinese culture, you want to fight to be the one to show honor to pay for that meal for them. In fact, even at that meal, when you clink glasses to toast one another for something, whether it's tea or alcohol of some kind, you will clink glasses, but where you clink the glass, shows or gives honor because the higher spot the part that's closer to your mouth the lower spot that touches the dirty table right that's not the honorable place so when your glasses touch whoever's glass is higher than the other has received the honor and if you intentionally go lower than their glass the lower you go the more honor you've shown right so the lower you touch on their glass the more that you have shown them honor My kids would take advantage of that and they would stomp their cup on top of mine. And they didn't understand outdo one another and showing honor. But I've seen Chinese guys, they'll have a dinner together and when they're going to clink glass, you can see they're jockeying for position, not to be on top, but to be on bottom. And so they'll do this number, (laughs) they're kind of nervously laughing. And then they realize, we can't keep this up. They get up from the table and they keep going all the way to the floor. And then eventually one of them gives up and receives the honor. But that's outdoing one another to show honor. I'm not trying to be noticed. I'm not trying to be recognized in church. I don't have to be uh, appreciated. I'm happy just to know that Jesus sees what I do. I don't have to be in high positions. I don't have to have chief seats. Very unlike the Pharisees. Jesus warned us, Matthew 6:1, beware of practicing your righteousness before people. In order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. We don't try to seek to be noticed and recognized in the church. When we are all jockeying for position, for the chief seats, to be noticed, to be praised, to be recognized, will that create division in a church? It always does. When people are fighting, for position. Remember, Jesus' own uh, disciples, before they were very mature, before Jesus was done with their discipleship process, remember what he found them doing? It says they were arguing amongst one another to see who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And what did Jesus tell them? The greatest among you will be the servant of all. What does God value, that we fight for position or that we try to clink someone's glass? at the floor level. You know, he wants us to outdo one another in showing honor, not trying to make much of ourselves. He says, D, serve God zealously. He says in verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So how do we serve the Lord? We are zealous. He says we are fervent. This word zeal is a fun word. Talking about water, it it, it would describe boiling water. It means to seethe, to boil over. It's water that's just room temperature is not much fun to look at. I mean, it just sits there. But boiling water, it's excitable. It's up, it's moving, it's, it's passionate. It's exciting water. It's hot. It's, you might even say, on fire. So for a believer who is room temperature for God, they're just sitting there. A zealous person is somebody who's fired up. They're excitable, they're seething, they're boiling over, they're excited about how they serve God. It says that they are fervent in spirit, they are passionate. This kind of person is driven to do what they do in serving God. That's the kind of spirit that we should have when we serve God in church. When we ask you to use your spiritual gift, we're not asking you to resign yourself to doing something you hate If you don't like working with kids, don't serve in Awanas. You say, but I keep getting asked. It's okay to say no. You can't do everything. And God doesn't want you doing everything. Leave that open. By the way, I'm not trying to go anti Awana here, Jamie. Okay, so help with the Awanas, please. Love the kids, they're a lot of fun. They never do anything wrong. But you know, if you don't like teaching classes, then don't be a Sunday school teacher. It's that simple. If you don't like teaching, that isn't where God wants you serving. This church, Unity Baptist Church, is not gonna be one of these churches where we guilt you into doing things because we need something done. I firmly believe by faith that if we simply teach you what spiritual gifts are and show you the joy of serving within your gifting, you're gonna want to be a part of those things. But God's gonna lead you. He's gonna lead you. Now, sometimes we do need people just to step in or fill in. That's fine. But for long-term service, look for areas where you can be passionate, seething, on fire for God, boiling over. But let me ask you this. What are you excited about today? When you come to church and you want to give, you want to be involved in church, what is it that excites you? Go for that. Every believer, rather than being a lukewarm Christian, should be hot, should be fiery, should be boiling and seething over, fervent, and zealous for God. Now I'm gonna ask you to do something here too. You'll notice in your bulletins, I almost missed it because it's so big. (laughs) On the front cover of your bulletins, you're gonna see a gigantic QR code. Yes, we are QR Code Baptist Church. We love these things. It's it's a simple way to get us on the same page. So you're gonna see a massive QR code that's so big, you may have actually overlooked it. And it's right there on the spiritual gift thing. It's a huge code. If you scan it later, not right now, I have to say that. Scan this over lunch today, or maybe over dinner at home. Scan that, and I'm gonna ask every believer who's a member of the church at least, I'm encouraging you, go through this. It's a spiritual gift inventory. It doesn't cost anything. It's a spiritual gift inventory. It's not flawless, but it'll show and reveal how you perceive your strengths to be. It's a good starting point. What kind of area should I be involved in? Let's see, my teaching is at a two. Probably not Sunday school teacher. Okay, uh, Maybe my mercy is a nine. Oh, we got places for you. Okay, There's certain things that, you know, mercy ministries that we have here in the church. Or maybe your service is really high. You know, we've got service teams and things that we can get you connected to. But I'm going to encourage you, go through this. And when you get to the end, they'll email you your results. But when you get to the end, if you would just screenshot the results of your, like these, you know, 10, 12 gifts or whatever it is. And I would encourage you actually to email that into Janie. Now, we're not going to check up on everybody and checklist you and make sure you did this, but I'm just asking you, if you if, can you make time to do that? And the reason we want to do it is this. As a church, when we're looking to do ministry, we want to help make sure you are encouraged toward ministries that are actually along the lines of your gifting. We don't want you miserable in the ways that you're serving. We want you fervent, excited about it, driven to do these things. This helps us understand how did God shape our church? What are the things that we can excel at as a church? What kind of ministries can we focus on? We're gonna see here E, another thing that promotes unity is we we look to God. The Bible says, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It doesn't say keep your eyes on the guy in the pew next to you. That guy's gonna disappoint you doesn't say keep your eye on your pastor. Your pastor is going to disappoint you. Don't keep your eyes on Theron. The Bible says keep your eyes on Jesus. Have an eternal perspective. And that's being communicated here. It says our rejoicing is in what? We rejoice in hope. The hope for a believer, by the way, let's pause. Hope for a believer is an, uh, something that we hope will happen, that we wish will happen. We're optimistic it will happen. A hope is a certainty. Just like Christmas. I know it's coming, and I'm looking forward to it. A hope for a believer means we're looking beyond the short temporary difficulties of this world and we are rejoicing in what is to come. When we can have an eternal perspective on life, it helps us to order the difficulties, the bumps and the bruises we get in daily living. We are rejoicing in our hope. Somebody who is eternally focused and all you're looking at is Jesus and what you're looking at is our eternal future in our heavenly home and you're looking at the eternal rewards that await us in the future, it's really hard to be focused on that and get really worked up about all the things happening here. You don't get as worked up when you watch the news. You don't get as worked up when somebody at church says something Maybe insensitive to you. You don't get worked up when just life happens and and you read news articles that are depressing. You're like, my rejoicing is in, in a future hope. When we're constantly focused on the future, we're focused on Jesus, we're focused on eternity, temporary things don't bother us as much. It leads us to a place where we are patient in tribulation. Patient is a Greek word that, it's a compound word, it means two things, much pain. Patient means I can endure a lot of pain from you before I get upset. And so when we have an eternal focus, I don't get upset really quick because somebody didn't remember my birthday or somebody didn't uh, have my, I don't know, Sunday school materials delivered to my class on time. I'm not gonna get immediately offended if somebody didn't have my door locked on time. I'm not gonna get immediately offended because somebody said something, that sounded like it might be negative about me, I don't know, but I'm gonna assume it was negative. We don't do that, we have an eternal perspective and that frees us from really living in the pains of day-to-day living. We can be patient in tribulation when things are hard. We can endure a lot of pain before we just start falling in on ourselves. And he says, and we are constant in prayer. How does prayer keep a church unified? Try this, think, think of some, somebody that's bothered you, start praying for them consistently and see if you can remain both offended at them and constant in prayer for them at the same time. It's really hard. Not, you know Hating somebody and praying for God to bless them and help them. It's going to reorient our hearts toward unity and so we are patient with one another because we have an eternal focus. And that makes a group of people inoffendable. Wouldn't that be nice? Be around a group of people who aren't easily offended. The slightest thing you say that's a little off. The slightest thing you say that's insensitive and they get all angry with you. Wouldn't you love to be around a group of people that are not easily offended? That's a mature believer with an eternal perspective. He says, verse 13, we give generously. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So there's two ways that we can give to one another. We can contribute, we can actually meet material needs. I'll Cut you a check for that. There's other times that we give to one another, it's hospitality. The word hospitality there, it literally means a love of strangers. We love people that aren't like us. It means I want to meet your needs. In Israel, that was one of the highest virtues of their culture, was to show hospitality. Stranger wanders in, they knew that in any Jewish city, all they had to do was sit at the center gate of the city when the sky started to get dark and the sun started to go down. They knew if they're in the center of the city and a Jew sees them, they're always going to invite them into their house. You knew that was gonna happen. You could presume upon their hospitality that they're gonna see somebody in need and they're going to help you. That's how hospitable their culture was. It was the highest of all virtues. It's why we are appalled as Americans. We read that story about Lot who offered his daughters you know, to these people who were trying to get after the angels that were with him. We're, you know, what is that? It's because that hospitality, meeting their needs, was the highest of all virtues in their culture. And so we contribute both either time or money or both. Now when that happens, a unique thing takes place. A relationship has been created. There's a bond there, isn't there? Think back, I want you to think right now. Think back to people throughout your life who have given you things. Maybe it was hospitality and they did something for you. Maybe they came alongside you when you were sick and they brought meals to you. Think back to people who have given you money. You remember those people, don't you? You put them on your prayer list, you send them Christmas cards, You remember the people that give you money and that give you time, don't you? I can remember them. I remember every single one of them. I remember the guy all the way back in my freshman year of Bible college when I worked off at a camp two states away. My car broke down and the alternator got broken. There was a Christian guy at that camp who fixed my alternator. I remember him, Dwayne, I remember you, okay? I remember people who have given me money when I needed it desperately, when my family was literally (laughs) starving our first year of marriage because I was in Bible college and earning $6 an hour. And people would send us money or they would buy us groceries. I remember those things. There's a bond that is forged there. I remember the people who helped us move Every single move I've had, I know who was there. And even with many of you, I know what you have done for us, those of you who have given to us when we needed. We left Malaysia with nothing. We, we had what we call a voluntary house fire <laughs> where we voluntarily left everything behind. It's just we couldn't get back, and it's just we lost everything. You as a church, I know you. You, have, you came alongside us. You were hospitable to us. You, were, you contributed to us, friends. When that happens, it forms a bond between the person giving and the person receiving. Now, what happens in a church when we are known as a people who give hospitable, you know, because we don't all have a lot of money, but you might give with time, you might give with money, and we do that for one another. We take care of each other's needs. Will that build up unity? That is straight 10W30 to the engine of Christ, isn't it? It forges bonds between one another. The early church did it too in Acts chapter 2, verse 44 and 45. He says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds of all as any had need why was the early church so unified they were constantly looking out for one another taking care of needs it says that we are to seek to show hospitality who needs help this morning you know who is it that we become aware of a financial need or a physical need and we want to be there to help it that unifies a church By the way, when this talks about Acts 2, that they had all things in common, let me just put a little asterisk here. Put this note in your Bible. This is not teaching socialism or communism. I know some people will try to inflate this and make it look like, see, even the early church was socialist or communist. No, it's not. What you see here is free will giving. Free will giving leads to unity. Socialism and communism is forced generosity. It's where the government takes something from your pocket to put it in somebody else's pocket. That's not how welfare, by the way, worked in Bible times, welfare worked like this. Your family took care of you. And if you're not working, your, fa- your mom's gonna be like, I ain't giving you no lunch, you get off your sorry bottom and you get yourself to work, okay. <laughs> and if you didn't have money, the church took care of you. That's how they handled welfare. If you were a widow indeed, if you were an orphan, you're somebody who's in need. We take care of your family and your church. But you don't do forced generosity. So this is not teaching socialism nor communism. This isn't a political thing, but I'm just telling you. Some people will try to misconstrue this. What unifies a church is not forced generosity where we put a tithe on you and we say, all of you are going to give every year $1,000 toward the poor. You're going to be begrudging. But what about if the Holy Spirit of God motivates you to give? A lot of times there's many of you, you'll give well above that. And it's going to unify you because it's the Spirit of God and not some external force uh, forcing this upon you. Now, sometimes in a church, everything doesn't go smoothly. This this is oil for the engine. These are things that keep us from getting into trouble. We're going to enter into a few verses that talk about, what about when we don't get along? It's going to happen. What do we do when things things don't go well? When, When life treats people poorly, when people treat people poorly. A, we need to be humble. Humble is the... doesn't mean that you think lowly of yourself. It just means that you don't think of yourself. You're focused on loving God and loving people, the two greatest commandments in the Bible. You're focused on them. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice. See, that's an outward focus. Weep with those who weep, that's an outward focus. Live in harmony with one another, that's an outward focus. Do not be haughty, which is inward focus, but associate the lowly, that's an outward focus. Never be wise in your own sight because that is inwardly proud. You see this? So we need to be humble. And he gives us some expressions of what that humility looks like. We rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, weeping with those who weep means that when you see somebody suffering, you're able to identify, you notice their pain, you come alongside them in their pain, and you help them where you can. A unified church helps people. We just talked about that. But also it says we can also rejoice with those who rejoice. That's the hard part. Can you be happy for someone when they just got uh, maybe a, a new job when you're still on the unemployment line? Can you be happy for them genuinely? When they get a raise and you didn't, when they got to take a Disney cruise but you didn't, can you still be happy for that person or will you resent their prosperity? There's a lot of people in America right now that resent prosperity. They resent rich people. Friends, there's nothing evil about rich people. Can we just say that? Nothing evil about them. It's what you do with your money and how your attitude toward money that makes, uh, makes it sin or not sin. But sometimes, Christians, we can resent prosperity of others because ultimately, why? Why would we resent it? Well, if they have it, I should have it. Now, is that an others' focus or a self-centered focus? That's a self-centered focus. So believers, we've got to be able to rejoice with people. Mothers, if, you know, you've been praying for a baby for five years, and then your best friend all of a sudden posts on Facebook, she's pregnant with her third child, how do you do at that point? How does your faith do? Can you genuinely be happy that God has blessed her in this way, even if he hasn't blessed you in this way yet? If you're humble, you can that creates harmony within a church. Harmony, he says, live in harmony with one another. Harmony is a musical term. Harmony, if you're all melody, that's all playing the same note. That's not what God expects us to be. He knows we're different from one another. Harmony is when you're playing different notes at the same time, but you're playing them in concert with one another and in a harmonious way. Notes that play nicely together. Sit on a piano sometime, there's notes that sound good together and then if I were to go to the piano and play some notes together, uh, you know, we hear this. Was that lovely? Does that foster a spirit of uh, worship in your heart? I'm guessing it doesn't because it's not harmonious. Okay, harmony is when we intentionally line up our work with the work of other people so that it sounds good together. You play nice with one another. The opposite of that is discord. It's what you just heard, okay? Those are discordant notes. When they're played together, it's like, nails on a chalkboard. You know, it's, it's, it's grating, it's irritating. And so to live in harmony with one another means that we're on the same page with other people. Even that term, by the way, the same page, it's, a mu- it, its origin is in musical terms. Your band director, if you've ever played in a band, he'll start everybody on a certain measure, a certain page of the musical number that you're doing. And there have been times in band when I'm, I played trumpet, tuba, and baritone. Those were fun. And I would be in band there, and he'd, he'd say one thing. Before, I was talking to my buddy because I was carnal back in high school, and I didn't hear what he said, and I started playing somewhere else, and I noticed immediately my notes were discordant. I'm not on the same page with them. I'm not lining up my life to fit well with what everybody else is doing. A harmonious church is a church where you don't have individuals doing what they want. You have individuals intentionally trying to find ways where their gifting will work well in relationship to other people. That's a unified church. He says, do not be haughty. Don't think highly of yourself. Don't think so, don't think so much of yourself that my will needs to be done. What does that look like in a church? To, to not be haughty in a church means that whenever we have a church vote, we don't get angry if it doesn't go my way means when we talk budget, we don't get offended if my Sunday school budget or my Awana budget, sorry, Jamie, I keep picking on you today, you know, or my budget, I get offended about that. We think about what's best for the church as a whole, not just me. How does this affect me? How does this affect my bottom line? High-mindedness means the church is there to serve me. The Bible teaches I exist. I have been created under what purpose? I've been created under good works. I'm created to serve the church. And so he says, don't be haughty. Don't be high-minded. Rather, associate with the lowly. Don't think so much of yourself that even there's certain people in a church that are above you or that are below you. Everybody here, as they say, the ground around the cross is level ground. When this moment you step through those doors, what you do on the outside doesn't matter. Oh, but I'm I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. I'm a judge. I'm a governor of the state. I'm a wealthy man. None of these titles mean anything once you come to church. We don't vote people into elders and deacon roles in the church because of their status outside the church. If you're a poor man, you have just as much opportunity. What are we looking for? We're looking for above reproach people. He says we're willing even to associate with the lowly. The lowly people are the people on the bus that none of the kids sit next to. They're the kids at school that when they sit down at a lunch table, everybody kind of scoots away from them. I don't want to be associated with them. I don't want any of your unpopularity to rub off onto me and affect me in any way. Okay, so a humble person, a unified church, are, is when people come through those doors, everybody is treated equally. I will love you equally, no matter what you look like, no matter what you smell like, no matter what the color of your skin is, no matter what your financial standing is, I'm gonna love you the same way as I do everybody else. I'm willing to associate with, with people maybe who would be considered of lower status than myself. Can you love like that? People who are different than you? You have a guy out there who has a reputation as a drunk. Can you love him? You got a person out there who's known to be uh, adulterous, who's known to be promiscuous. Can you love that person when they come here? You have somebody who's in a homosexual relationship. When they walk through these doors, you may not agree with them, I'm not telling you to, but can you love them? Does, can Jesus love them? Remember, while we we're sinners, Jesus died for our sins. Can you love them? You see, you get somebody who comes in and their hair is like three feet tall, but it's shaved on one side, and they have forty-five different piercings in different places and a face tattoo. You know, one of those that says, "Please never hire me." You know, you you, you I mean, it's just everywhere, and they look different. They have horns. People have horns surgically implanted in them now. Somebody who thinks they're a dog. You know, I'm not even joking at this point. Can you love that person with purple hair? What if a person comes to church and they're not dressed like you? What if a girl comes in and you, she's wearing something you think is immodest? Can you love her anyway and not focus on her dress and go, pss, 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 can you believe that girl walked in here? If we cannot love the lowly, people who aren't mature in Christ, people who don't know Christ, if we can't love them, we didn't learn that from Jesus. Jesus drank from a Samaritan's cup, Jesus touched a leper. Jesus' highest praise for faith was a Roman soldier, an occupying force that Israel hated. Jesus, when he told a story about a good person, he called him the good Samaritan, someone the Jews hated. Jesus so spent time with people who were struggling with addiction, they thought Jesus himself must be a drunk. When's the last time you got accused of some kind of vice in your life because you so carefully love people who are struggling? That's a unified church, people who can love anybody. B, do not seek revenge. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. When somebody does us evil, what's your first response? You're praying down the imprecatory Psalms, right? And imprecation is, uh, is calling upon God to curse people who have done wrong. You know, that's what we're praying, you know. God, break their teeth with gravel. That's in your Bible, by the way. You're gonna wanna look that up. You know, we're praying that, God, harm them for the evil they've done me. Now, it's one thing to call God to avenge you, but it's another thing to become Batman, vigilante, someone who avenges themselves. We don't do that. A unified church doesn't seek revenge on people even when they do you serious wrong. And sometimes people in church can do you serious wrong. My wife and I, we were church planting. And we had three little kids at home. And I was, by the way, when I say church planting, Reed, Heath has virtually no paycheck, okay? It was bad enough that my wife started selling Mary Kay just to make ends meet. And she brought someone in, I'm not going to name any names, but she brought someone in, uh, you know, who wanted to do Mary Kay with her. And Amber paid for her full inventory, and this lady was writing her a check for $1,250. Well, we go to cash that check, and boing, uh uh-oh, we go to call this person up. This number you have dialed has been disconnected. So we call the bank and the bank says, that account has been closed a long time. So that check was written long after they knew it was closed. Somebody intentionally in our church wrote us a bad check at the worst time of our life. How does your faith do at that point? We remember the times people hurt us, but what we can do is we can choose to put that behind us. There are things that my wife and I could have done that we just didn't do because we wanted to maintain a good testimony. Can we forgive one another? Or are we going to seek to repay evil for evil? Fight fire with fire. Are we going to react to them? Are we going to seek revenge? Verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Why do believers not have this internal sense of I need to get revenge? Because we know God has this. If there's any punishment that needs to be done, God will do it. He'll take care of it. And not only do we not take revenge, but we respond to pain with a blessing. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Persecute here, a lot of times we say persecute, you're thinking of somebody, you know, in Africa, you're thinking of somebody in China, you're thinking of the persecuted church. People who are like getting stoned and murdered for their faith. That's not the word here. The word persecute here means repeated intentional harm that there's sometimes people in our life who don't just accidentally hurt us. They're mean people. They, they are causing intentional, repeated harm. What does the Bible say we should do in response? He says, bless them. It's a, it's a Greek word, eulogeo, which means you, good word. Logos means a word. It's a good word. It's where we get one English word. What sounds like eulogeo? It sounds like eulogy. You ever given a eulogy at a funeral? What is that for? You stand up. And, well, I've got my time here. Uncle Bob, you know, he's, he's in the casket now. But I'm going to let you know what kind of a low-down, dirty scoundrel this guy really is. Still owes me 50 bucks, you know. Or if it's your dad, you know, eh, he never came to any of my basketball games. You know, and we just start bringing up all the bad things that they legitimately did. They, they really did bad things to me. Do we bring that up at that time? What is a eulogy for it means we take all the stuff that we know is bad, all the ways they've offended us, and we choose to set it aside, and we're going to focus on the good in them, and we're going to speak well of them. When others talk about them, we're going to speak well of them. Oh, yeah, you know that uh, you know Bob called you a no-good something or other? Oh, Bob, I'm sorry to hear that. I really like Bob. That's going to get back to Bob, and that's going to have an impact on his heart. <clears throat> Jesus said these same words in Matthew five. He says, verse forty four, "Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you will be your sons of your Father who is in heaven." You want to be like God? He says, "Pray for those who persecute you, love your enemies." He says, "This is the, this in this way you'll be sons of your Father in heaven because He makes His Son right to rise on evil and the good and sends rain." On both the just and the unjust this, this behavior is not logical But God doesn't love like this God sends love equally out into the world Toward all men Even though all men are not going to reciprocate that love God says if you want to be godly If you want to be godlike You're going to love people in that same way You're not going to love them because they love you You're going to love them because God loved you First John says we love because he first loved us That's all the motivation I need to love somebody It's because of who I am Beloved, let us love one another because love is of God and everyone that loves is born of God. He that does not love does not know God because God is love. You want to show people that you're a Christian? By this shall all men know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. We choose to, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable on the side of all. What he's saying is don't react, respond. What's a reaction? Science class? Science class? Reactions are both equal and opposite, aren't they? This hits, this hits, then this hits, and then this hits. What do we call that? It's a perpetual motion machine. It's an equal and opposite reaction. And it goes on like that for like forever, by the way. It's equal and opposite. And sometimes we get into that cycle with one another, can't we? Where we enter what we call the cycle of pain. You hurt me? Oh, it's coming in with interest. I'm gonna hurt you back oh you had that coming now I'm gonna and we hit him back and then what does it do I'm gonna get you back and we could be like all day doing this do you see the cycle of pain and it just keeps clack 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 as we hurt one another that's the cycle of pain how do you stop the cycle of pain you stop reacting some of you in your marriages are stuck in a cycle of pain aren't you where you hurt and because you hurt me I'm gonna hurt you And because you hurt me I realize you really deserved it so I'm gonna hurt you back Well, man, you no good, I'm gonna hurt you then. Well, then I'm gonna hurt you. The only way to stop that is to stop reacting and instead respond. Respond means that we do what our text says. We give thought to do what is honorable. It means you hit me, and I think, okay, what do we need in this situation? Do they need need to hit back? No, God can hit them back. I'm gonna respond with love. Aren't you glad we just, we honored our first responders here today. Aren't you glad we don't call them first reactors? Can you imagine them showing up on, the, uh, on, a, on a scene here and the fire trucks roll up and the police roll up and the ambulances, they all roll up, this fiery accident and the crowd is like, Aah! and they're panicking. And these folks, they, they're not first aid trained or anything. They don't know what to do. And then the guy gets out of the ambulance. Oh, okay, what do we got here? Oh, what's going on? Jimmy, what do we do? I've never seen this before. He's in two pieces. They're reacting. We call them first responders because they look at a scene here, and when everybody else is fleeing, when everybody else is running away from the guy with gunshots, our policemen are running toward them. When everybody else is running out of the burning building, the firemen are running in. When everybody else is freaking out and crying and they're in shock because you know somebody's covered in blood, you know, in this car accident, you have people who know how to behave with honor in that situation and they do what's best for the person. It doesn't even matter if, you know, you show up on an accident and you see a guy, you're starting to get the jaws of life out and then you suddenly recognize them and you realize, that guy owes me 50 bucks. I'm packing it up. That's a first reactor. A first responder says, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, I'm gonna do what's honorable in this situation. That's why we honor our first responders this morning. They do what is honorable. No matter who you are or what you've done, they're gonna do what's right. That's what God is calling us to. Even if nobody else will do it to you, we do it. Verse 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What he's saying is, you might live a completely godly Christian life toward this person, they're still not gonna listen. Some people are just gonna be that way. Not everybody's gonna respond to you in a positive way. It's okay. Just don't let you be part of the guilty party. Instead, verse 20 says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. How do we respond to produce repentance in the life of somebody else? Because that's ultimately what we want. Have you ever found out that anger is a really bad way to produce repentance in somebody? James 1 tells us the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And yet, often, that's the very thing we use to try to bring that person to repentance. You should feel sorry. I'm going to get mad to show you how sorry you should be. That doesn't make you repentant, it makes you feel justified. And yet, the Bible tells us, in Romans 2, 4, it says it's the kindness of God that led us to repentance. And so what we do is, if our enemy is hungry, we feed him, if he's thirsty, we give him something to drink. Again, I keep using her an example, my wife does that very well for me sometimes. Sometimes we have disagreements. We don't see things eye to eye. We can disagree sometimes rather strongly about something. And my natural tendency is just to kind of pull away and to think about this and pray. Boy, I just don't know, oh boy, I'm so upset in my heart. And you know what she'll do? She isn't gonna come in here and yell at me. You know what she's gonna do? Many, many, many times she's done this. She'll come in with a plate of cookies and a glass of milk. Or, or she'll come in with a sandwich that she's prepared and she'll just kind of gently and quietly set it down next to me. What's she doing there? She's not reacting, she's responding. She's giving thought to what is honorable. And you know what that does? When I see that, I don't think you worthless and throw that sandwich on the floor. My thought is, I, it's a mirror to my heart. I'm hurting this girl who is quite clearly one of the godliest people on the face of the earth. And wow, what a... What a worthless you know, someone or other than I, I must be for treating her this way. And you know what it produces? It produces repentance in my heart. That's how we produce repentance in other people. We show them kindness when it's undeserved. That's when it's most clearly seen. There's no dual motive to this. He says, when we do this, in verse 20, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Yeah, revenge. <laughs> That's not what he's talking about, is it? What does it mean to heat burning coals? This needs some explanation. Jewish culture, they were very visible and very out there. When they thought Jesus was blaspheming, what they do? They ripped their robes. John the Baptist wore camel hair as a representation that he was feeling repentant. One of the customs that was brought over from Egypt, remember Israel lived there for 430 years and uh, still had close relationships with him. Egyptian custom was when you know that you have hurt somebody so badly, you have wronged them, and you come to an awareness of this, you would go into the city gate area, somewhere that's very visible, and you would sit there with hot coals and you'd place them literally in a pan on your head. It was an outward symbol of how you feel on the inside. The more coals, the more bad I feel, evidently. And so what this is saying here is every time you respond to pain with blessing, to evil words with a kind word, to a, with a gift to somebody who has taken from you, Not only are we like the sons of Father in heaven, but what does God tell us? It heaps burning coals on their head. Every kindness that we do to somebody to whom it's undeserved, it creates within their heart a burning sensation in their mind. How can I keep hurting somebody who keeps blessing me in this way? And it produces an internal desire to repent and change. Will they? It's no guarantee. But we don't do things in the Bible because it works. We do it because it's right. We do it because it's what God does. We do it because God says his reign on the just and the unjust. That's how we love one another because this is how God first loved us. Can we commit together as a church to doing that with one another? Not evil for evil, but we respond to pain with blessing. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that as we study your word, we discover more and more about who you are. And when the more we get to know about who you are and what you're like, The more difficult that call to be godly is. We realize that we're nothing like you, that we don't love typically and naturally in the way that you love. Help us to supernaturally love people with the power that you supply. I pray that Unity Baptist Church will be known as a church not for guilt and shame and anger and hotly contested business meetings, but that we would be known for our love, that we are gentle, that we are patient, that we are a group of inoffendable people because you loved us in this way. Let's call this in Christ's name. Amen.
0: From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, Click on the link in the show notes, and we would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. If you've enjoyed today's talk, remember to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. As promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland.